0: Well we started off with a bang in Ephesus and we end with a bang in Laodicea. Located 40 miles to the southeast of Philadelphia, the followers of Jesus in Laodicea were the recipients of the seventh and final letter from Jesus. Situated in the beautiful Lycus River Valley, on the main road running through the interior of Asia Minor, Laodicea flourished. The city was founded in the middle of the third century BC, and by the first century AD, it had become the leading city of the region with at least 120,000 residents. And by the time of revelation, the city had become wealthy, like really, really wealthy. But it hadn't always been that way. In 17 AD, the same earthquake that decimated Philadelphia crushed Laodicea as well. And although not overtly clear in the historical record, Laodicea almost certainly received financial aid from Rome because, like most cities, it needed significant Roman funds to rebuild. Nine years later, in 26 AD, Laodicea competed against 10 other cities in Asia Minor for the honor of building the temple of emperor worship to Tiberius. Now, some of you may recall that Smyrna was awarded that privilege. And the reason Rome gave for why the Laodiceans were rejected for this privilege? Insufficient resources. And this seemed to leave a chip on the Laodiceans shoulder. Because in 60 AD, after that other massive earthquake hit the region, Laodicea was the only city to deny aid from Rome and rebuilt their city entirely of their own means. They had wealth and didn't need a thing. So what made Laodicea so famous and wealthy? Well, many things actually, but let's highlight just three of them. Uh, One, they were a banking center that minted their own coins. Think the Denver Mint. Two, they were the chief medical center of the region and world famous for their ophthalmology division in which they produced a healing eye salve that people sought from all over the known world. And three, they produced the designer clothing of the day with their soft, shiny, raven black wool, making their garments coveted by the rich and the famous. Now, unique to Laodicea was that there were two other significant cities in eyeshot of Laodicea. Heropolis, just six miles to the north, and Colossae, 11 miles to the southeast. And from a biblical perspective, these three cities were seen in connection with one another. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says in chapter four to the Colossians about their pastor Epaphras, Paul says, I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. What's more, Paul says two verses later, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. A Laodicea, Colossae, and Heropolis were a triangle of three cities. And if you don't know what made them unique, It's easy to misinterpret the beginning of Jesus's letter in Revelation to Laodicea. Now, the last thing you need to know is that unlike any of the other six letters, this letter has no praise, no commending, only challenge. It's intense. It's from Jesus and it's for us as well. May we have ears to hear as we dig into the letter to Laodicea.
1: I haven't told you this, Molly, but I'd like to follow up just with a little brief story about the uh, I Love Jefferson we just had. I had my annual physical this past week and the nurse checking me in as a single mom and she went on and on and on about how excited the I Love Jefferson was. It's almost embarrassing. Her son evidently got some uh, dinosaur tennis shoes to which he was extremely proud and she had a hard time getting them to take them off for bedtime. And so, so that was quite interesting. Thank you for being here today. If you're joining us online, thank you for tuning in and connecting with us. We are a better church because of you i'm a better person because of you i need to hang out in community i need to have your experience as part of my life and so thank you for being here today thank you for being partners with us in ministry we've seen a lot of accomplishments god moving in our past many many times over the decades The greatest accomplishments have nothing to do with building buildings or raising material resources, of course. The greatest accomplishments is when we partner together and God works through us to reach people, to see lives changed. Sometimes he reaches out into the darkest night of sin and captures people who are heading toward a brick wall and don't realize it. Other times, it's people like me and you. Who get off trail, we get off pathway, and he guides us back on the way we should go. There's even times we we lose our way when we are so focused on reaching other people. We're consumed with wanting to take the message to them. We get so busy doing that, we forget about our own journeys. These are challenging times of which we are living through. Some would say some of the most challenging. COVID-19 restrictions, change in political environments, a culture that seems to be changing so rapidly with so many new things. Newscasters, which we don't know whether we can trust what they say or not. Is it politically motivated? Is it really news? And don't get me started on those churches, what's going on there, and interpreting people's motives. But I'm encouraged when I read Romans chapter 5. Paul talks about a number of blessings that God gives to us through Christ and how we glory in those blessings. But he says, and not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know sufferings leads to perseverance, perseverance to character and character to hope. I hope we as a church embrace hope today. Because even though these are challenging times, if we persevere and allow God to develop our character, ultimately we will be filled with hope and the best days of the church are before us. We have had a good journey with these churches and the lessons that comes to the churches. And one thing can be said for sure, the message are as real and relevant to us today as they were to the churches who received these messages. But there's a great temptation in hearing the messages of these churches. The temptation is to think the message is for that church or for those people, or maybe it's those people but we look right past it for us. In the few minutes we have together today, I would ask all of us just for these few minutes to imagine a great mirror of God's word in front of us. And the reflection that we come back at us, let's see that as our reflection and not just for that church, or for those people, but let's look at the reflection that comes back to us from God's word. Because I suspect there will be no church that will be a greater temptation to us to imagine it is relevant words for them and those guys, but miss the point that is for us and it is part of our journeys today. The reason I think this will be a temptation is because of what we read in Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. The reason I call this the church that's in denial they were deceiving themselves. We talk about deception many times and we usually use it in the context of one person deceiving another, one person deceiving an organization. But some of the most blinding deceptions that we live through is when we deceive ourselves. And I think that's what was happening in the church of Laodicea. Denial comes many times and in many forms. Sometimes people who are far from God, they're racing like a speeding train toward a brick wall, and they somehow come to this deception that they don't need God. They've got this. Other times, it's people like you and me. Perhaps we've been following God for decades. Perhaps we look at our lives and we see from a long distance past things that God has helped us overcome. We've come a long way in our journey. We are thankful for all the blessings of God. We are so thankful for our history and focused on our history that we sometimes step into denial about where our current journey is taking us. And mystery of mystery, sometimes we get so wrapped up in reaching other people, in reaching out, engaging in worthy causes to take the gospel to so many people who need it that we forget about our own journey. And so as we look into the lesson today. Let's imagine that mirror of God's word reflecting the image that he wants to give to us, and let's see not only what God wants to say to that church and to those people, but what does he want to say to us? First of all, I'd like to show you some quick pictures about Laodicean church. Here's a picture of the outside of the church and. Of course, imagine the context of where this church is. This was a prestigious church in a prestigious community. Now we have a picture of what the church looked like on the inside, and if you can imagine the splendor of the day, and when people would come into this church, it would be with awe and wonder. Outside this church, you could see Main Street. And then if you could just imagine in its glory days, this this church was not only a great church, a significant church, but it was in the right neighborhood. But the church also was in a city for all of its significance. They got their water through an aqueduct system, Traveling mostly underground through these stone pipes. And we have two, two pictures of that. And if you can imagine, that's where their water came from, from this aqueduct system, some six miles long. I think it is important for us to look at just a little bit at their background and history so we can understand the context of the message when Jesus contextualizes it for them. Laodicea, was founded some three centuries BC, and it was initially poor and, and, a, and a difficult location. But over time, it progressed and became, by the time this book was written, one of the leading cities in the area. It was known for its wealth, and as Brad said, it was a banking center, minting its own coins. It was a medical center, known from all around as a place to go, especially for this thing that they developed for this eye treatment. They were the center for designer clothes, and and those who traded in this, this special material, it was indeed for the upper class. This was for wealth. But in addition to that, it was right in the center of two major trade routes, which brought to it all kinds of commerce, prestige, and wealth. It was surrounded with rich, fertile soil. It was a political center, an economic center, and indeed... It was a place to be. But for all of its benefits financially, for all of its economic standing, it had one glaring weakness. No good source of fresh water. The water had to come traveling down through this aqueduct center. And I can only imagine when that water came out, perhaps lukewarm temperature-wise, but even more so imagining the sediment and the pollution that was part of that water supply. So when Jesus uses this analogy, they have a real image in their mind. And when he translates it and makes the point about their spiritual condition, this isn't just an abstract, run-of-the-mill uh, 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 illustration to them. This analogy hits right where they are living. But as we think about Laodicea's background, I have to make the comment and the observation that when we think about their spiritual lives, they were at a significant disadvantage. They were at a significant disadvantage because they had so much. And when we have so much it tends to lead us toward a feeling of self-sufficiency. Forgive me for these personal comments and forgive me for the ignorance behind them. But I've spent much of my life thinking that the American church had a corner on the market. And I felt so sorry about those people in foreign lands. The first time I heard this, I was in Barbados when this church was gathered around me and I heard them pray for the American church. What's that about? Do you know what they were praying for? They were praying for us because they were fearful that we had so much, we would not know what a life of faith was like. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I heard it again when an Indian pastor stood in our home after I'd taken him on a little tour of our little little church in a small town, and he, I, I don't know what I was expecting to hear, but I was shocked when he expressed to me his burden and, and grief for me, because how could you possibly live by faith when you have everything? I heard it again when I was in India we were gathered around, and again, I didn't know what to hear when I was surrounded by people that I would have viewed in what I would probably interpret it as abject poverty, and to hear them pray with such fervor for the American church, because how could we possibly live by faith? Please don't, under, please don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying wealth is bad, and I'm not trying to condemn the American church. I'm just pointing out a disadvantage spiritually. When we have so much, if God doesn't help us, it can lead us to the illusion of self-sufficiency. And when we feel self-sufficiency, that can lead us to the illusion that we don't need to depend on God nearly as much as what we really think we need to it can also lead us to the illusion that somehow we've got this. We can make it on our own. We don't need community near as much as some of those people groups do who need each other to survive. When I look at these seven churches, I noticed a couple observations. Smyrna and Philadelphia were the only two churches among the seven who were specifically noted to be in poverty and great trial and great tribulation, they're the only churches that don't receive a rebuke from Jesus. Amazing. Nobody had to tell them they needed to depend on God. By their circumstances and their surroundings and what they were going through, they were to a place where they needed God. They knew they needed God. And in the midst of their difficulty... It led to perseverance, which led to character development, which led to real hope that's found in Christ. The five churches, all of which would had rebukes, would have been considered wealthy by comparison. And then the church that we're talking about today, Laodicea, who didn't receive one comment of affirmation, but a stern, focused rebuke, was perhaps when you consider the totality of the situation, the wealthiest, the most prestigious of them all. They thought they didn't need anything, but it was deception and the worst kind of deception. They deceived themselves. Jesus has a very clear message to them. Let's look to the scriptures here and Revelation chapter 3. The angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. One of my favorite expressions of thinking about Jesus, it's a Hebrew expression, amen. It's certain, it's confirmed, let it be. And when it's used in the context of Jesus, it speaks about his authority to bring it past. When you talk about the great I and amen of all ages, it's the one who can bring it to pass. And so when we hear about the amen, we want to listen to what he has to say. One of my favorite scriptures is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says, for no matter how many promises of God has made, they are yes in Christ, And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. It is Jesus who is every promise of God is yes and in him, amen. It is for sure true. You can depend on it. Tied very closely to that is the next phrase. He's the faithful and true. What he's about to say, we can hear. We know it's true and we should listen to it. He's starting this off with a rather emphatic Clear declaration of authority because he's talking to a church that's having trouble listening to truth. They have in their mind something, but they need to hear an objective voice. This Greek word that's translated ruler in most of your Bible, some would translate it beginning, actually has nothing to do with a chronological beginning, but it has to do with with position, with authority, with stature. And so ruler is a good way of translating that. A couple verses that I bring to you that, that reinforce this idea, Revelation 22, 13, on the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know what that verse is implying. From A to Z, it's all covered. It's all under the authority of Jesus. He's the great I am of all ages. He's from the beginning to the end, from the alpha to the omega. He knows it all. He holds it all. He is an absolute authority. Another verse we'd bring in support of that is from Colossians. How the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is authority over all creation. For in him all things were created. Quite literally, in him everything was created. Things in heavens and earth, visible, invisible, visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, all things have been created by him. When I read the Old Testament, when I see the prophets trying to exalt the name of God and lift him into the highest stature, again and again, I see them revert to when they've run out of adjectives, when they've run out of ways to express it, they kind of fall back on this idea and declaring him to be the creator of all that is. There is no higher credential than that. And so when Jesus begins to speak to this church with that one verse, the faithful and true, the one that's going to bring it to be, the one who has absolute authority, essentially listen to what I have to say to you. And ultimately that mirror that's in front of us, ultimately the message that's about to come out is one that we should listen to, one that we should pay attention to. There is no greater authority bringing it to us today than Jesus Christ. But Laodicea, Their economic status, their political status, the prestige of the church, unfortunately, carried over into their perception of their spiritual life. They were at one of the best churches. They were at one of the most prosperous churches in a good neighborhood, in an amazing city. They had everything going for them, and so naturally, they would come to this conclusion that we have arrived. Unfortunately... It was a deception that they were deceiving themselves. As Brad said, this city was decimated at least twice, maybe three times. And the most recent, not long before this letter was written some 30 years before, they rebuilt themselves. Rome sent help and they said, no thanks, we got this. We don't need a thing. That almost became the moniker of this city. We don't need a thing. We have it all under control. I don't know a lot, but I have come to believe that whenever those words begin to go through my mind in any kind of spiritual sense, I know that I'm off track. Because if there's anything that I know today, we need him. We are a desperate people and we need God's help all the time. When Jesus looked at this church, a church that he loved, and don't misunderstand Brad's opening. It is true. Jesus did not compliment this church. He, it's the only church that got no commendation but he never condemned this church. He rebuked this church because ultimately, as we will come to in a moment, he loved this church. He wanted this church to come to grips with where they are. And he was using this metaphor, which he'll open up, But when they came to the conclusion that they didn't need anything because Jesus could see so clearly the truth of their situation and how desperately they really needed God, it really made him sick that they would have such self-deception to conclude that somehow they didn't need God. Jesus uses a number of analogies or metaphors to make the point to them. The most significant one is this one related to lukewarm water. Let's follow the scripture. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you were lukewarm, neither neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And if we were to translate that quite literally... I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You know, these days, there's a lot of people doing evaluations. (laughs) Maybe I'm not the only one who's getting weary of it. But it seems wherever I go, I hear people telling me about their evaluation of this or that political leader, how this or that political leader is doing a good job or a bad job, how this newscaster or that newscaster is, is not portraying truth, but they're giving us their political views, how this church or that church is doing, this church is a church of faith, this church is scared to death of COVID. There's so many evaluations going on so many judgments about other people. And unfortunately, as I look in that mirror, sometimes I'm one of those voices. But Jesus reminds me, it's easier to see the speck in somebody else's eye than the plank that is in mine. This church that had so much going for it couldn't see the plank that was in their own eye. I 'm good. I have it covered. I don't need a think, a, a, a thing. Well, the analogy that Jesus uses about the lukewarm water, there's multiple views of what inspired this analogy and how this analogy was contextualized to this church. I would just share two of them with you. One uses the motivation for the analogy to be cold symbolizes far away from God a long way from him and not realizing our need for God the theory being that when you are in a very far away from God and you face a crisis perhaps then when you've come to the end of yourself you'll be more open to God and and turn your hearts to him hot of course, symbolizing close intimacy relationship, but the danger of being lukewarm. You're not so far away from God that you glaringly will come to grips with what it means not to have God in your life, but you're not yet over to the place of experiencing God in his fullness, so you're right here in a hard-to-reach zone. Perhaps that's an application of this analogy. But these days, I more identify with it in this regard. I imagine myself standing on Main Street right outside this church. After a hot day and, and the sun is beating down, and I feel my throat parched and I'm, I'm imagining, I'm imagining to the east those cool springs of Colossae and I imagine what it would, how, how good that water would taste with that fresh spring bubbling up in the cool water and oh, that would make my throat Feel so good. Or I imagine looking to the north, just some six miles away, there, there's hot springs, and I imagine after a hard day's work, all the muscles on my joints would be aching and how good it would feel to, to dip in those hot springs and how the warm water would just, it would make me have the imagination that they had a healing quality to it. I would feel so good. But I'm standing on Main Street in Laodicea, and I'm seeing that polluted water coming out of those stone aqueduct system. And I'm so thirsty, I take a drink of it and spit it out. It tastes awful. Jesus says to this church, I wish you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Regardless of which view you take on this analogy, something that almost everyone agrees to, that the main point of this analogy is, is that the lukewarm water makes Jesus want to vomit it. Perhaps literally, it's focused on the temperature of the water. But more likely thinking the context of Laodicea and what they would think, they would be thinking also of how it is polluted and how easily we get polluted with the things of the world, the culture of our day, the the theology of the day and so much other stuff that tends to sometimes get us off track. But mostly when we have the illusion that we somehow got this, we can do it on our own it makes Jesus want to vomit. Not because he doesn't love us, not because he is against us, but because he knows where this will ultimately lead us. It makes him sick. And I would venture to say just about every parent here, if you've been a parent for a while, sometime or another, you have seen something happen in your kids, some value that they've been doing, some choice that they have been making, and it has made you sick because of your fear where this is going. And so when Jesus rebukes this church... I don't hear any words of condemnation. What I hear is a broken heart for a church that's heading the wrong way. And he is looking for a way to bring them back. But to emphasize this a little bit more, there are five areas specifically that Jesus mentions to reinforce this overall arching thing. We read here in Revelation, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, you do not need a thing. You do not realize that you are wretched, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shame, nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes. Whatever else this church thought, it was not thinking it was wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This church thought of itself as something in good standing, something to be admired. They had accomplished, I mean, they had built this wonderful church and they they were in the right neighborhood and so many things were going right for them. They did not comprehend spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus looked at this church and I imagine two compelling things making up his perception. Number one, he saw a church in trouble, in desperate trouble, heading toward that brick wall a thousand miles an hour all the time saying to themselves, we don't need a thing. He was brokenhearted by that. But secondly, and the scriptures bear this out, we read in 319, 319, For those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I know there's variations of this. We're all flawed people. I can just tell you that in so many levels and so many parents I have talked to in so many situations and experiences that I myself have had, When a parent sees their child heading down the wrong way, when they begin to perceive this is not going to end well, it feels like the life is being sucked out of you, not because you're condemning your kids, not because you're wanting to point out all their faults, but because you would wish that they would make a different choice, that the situation could be better for them. And that's how Jesus looks at this church. He loves this church. I've made a big change from this point in the message on. This is the point in the message which we turn away from the church of Laodicea and we begin to make application. I've been here before. I've taught this lesson I don't even know how many times. I have preached the message here before and here's where I would lay on all the guilt on you I could. This is where I'd want to make everybody here begin to feel uncomfortable about how far away from you are with the intimacy of God and how much you need to repent and turn your hearts to God. You need to come down to this altar and repent. But I'm not going to do that this time because over the years that I have taught that way. And no matter how many people have come to the altar and begin to cry, no matter how many people filled out a card and said that they need to make their heart right with God, I've noticed something that's been amazing to me. Actual change was short-lived. And then we were right back on the same merry ground we were before. No, this time... As we move into the application, I want to change it. Step number one. Step number one. We have to step out of denial and begin to admit that it is us, yes, it is us standing in need of God's help. It's not just the church of Laodicea or those people over there or those people over there. Step one is to understand we have a condition that we are utterly unable to take care of ourselves. No matter how many times we kneel at the altar, no matter how committed we are in sacrificing and and trying to be more diligent and disciplined, we simply cannot do it on our own. I was so tempted to wear a T-shirt today. I wanted to have a suit on and take my coat off at this time. On the chest of this T-shirt, it says, I am one of those people. And on this concept that I share with you, you would have to look long and hard to find anyone in this church more unworthy to bring this message to you today than me. But on the other hand, I have the credentials because I have been here many times and I can tell you all the ways I have tried to stay in intimacy with God that has failed. But today I want to tell you about a different way, a different path. It's not as though it's an event we do and something we check off like in a box. It is an experience. It's something we do on a daily basis. And I know, number one, it begins with understanding and admitting that we are broken and we need God's help. We have to admit our spiritual poverty, something I don't like to do. It's much more natural to me to look over my long past experiences and give you all kinds of stories of how I am not what I once was. And I can become self-deceived and I've come so far, but I don't realize how far I yet have to go sometimes. Do you know how God gets my attention? God has done this many times for me. And unfortunately, he's probably gonna to need to do it more in my future. One way he gets my attention again and again, he brings a good crisis to my life. And those crises are sometimes individual, sometimes they're mine, sometimes it's one of our children or grandchildren, sometimes it's something going on in the church. Sometimes there's something going on in the nation, but every once in a while he brings me right into full crisis and I realize no matter what, I cannot do this on my own. I need God's help. And that becomes something of a metaphor. That's how my whole life is. It's just sometimes I am deceived. I think I've got this, but I really don't. You might think my wife is... Very nice person. Sometimes she's not. Sometimes I come home from work. She says, how's your day go? I say, it's fine. And she'll go, I'm fine, I'm fine, it's fine. But you're really not. She's just singing that song that we saw on the radio. That's true for us spiritually. We're so tempted to say it's fine. I've got this when really it's not. Another way God gets my attention is done and he brings me face to face with my brokenness and I can't escape it. And I realize I cannot fix this brokenness on my own. If I could, I wouldn't be broken to begin with. There's a couple scriptures in Revelation. I bring them to you. I'm gonna need to speed up here a little bit so I'm not gonna read the whole text but the first scripture verse is simply goes this. Here's the point of it. Paul faces it when he writes that Revelation, Romans chapter 7. There are things that I want to do, but I can't. There are things that I don't want to do, but no matter how hard I try, I cannot contain myself. I do them. Then the next scripture, just a few verses later, The point of these verses, when he comes face to face with this principle inside of him, he realizes it's something bigger than him. There's no amount of willpower, no amount of determination, no amount of anything he can do to fix this. It's, it's, It's bigger than anything he can do. Now there's two glaring misapplications of these words. The first missed application are those people who deny this principle. Oh, I can do this. I just got to try harder. I just got to be more disciplined. I just got to do this. I got to do, imagine, think, think all the personal pronouns here. This is what I got to do. as though we could somehow do this. But the whole point of what Paul is saying, you can't do it. It's impossible for us to do it. There's something powerful, more powerful than us. We can't do this on our own. The other misapplication, which is almost as bad. We think we are sentenced here. Because we don't have the power, there's no hope, so we might as well just quit trying. But in these same verses, it leads me to step number two. We must come to a place of earnestly believing that God has the power, the desire, and the will to help us overcome these things. Romans chapter 7, verse 25. Just after Paul gives these rather lengthy indictments of what he can't do, he brings Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. There is a power greater than us. We spend all our time talking to lost people about what Christ can do for them that they can't do for themselves, and we forget. That the same power of Christ, there are things He can do for us that we can't do ourselves. And one of those things is to help us find and live in an intimate relationship with, with Him. He rebukes those He loves, He wants us to have an intimate relationship with him and again and again when God comes back to me and tries to get my attention he's doing that not because he needs me he's doing that because he loves me he sees me heading toward that brick wall and he's trying to get my attention this idea of spiritual intimacy is not optional for us We need it to survive. The images of a church that is no longer, this is a church that didn't need a thing. But without him, we will become as destitute as the church of Laodicea. I share two verses with you from the book of Ezekiel. They were written for a local context, but they were also prophetic words of what he would ultimately fulfill once the spirit came. I will give you an undivided heart. Put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people. I will be their gods, their God. And then... Again, I will, be, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and follow my decrees. Spiritual intimacy with God does not come by a one-time spiritual experience coming to the altar and then we go back on our daily lives. It takes a miraculous move of God to give us a new heart, to change our heart, to give us a desire for him because we can't do it ourselves. But I need to tell you something else about this. I wish God would do the whole thing. I can't tell you how much I wish God would just do the whole thing. Just give me a new heart and and, and just make make me do everything that I should be doing. But it's more of a partnership with him the first thing I come in discovery with, not only does God give me a new heart, gives me the possibility of living in intimacy with him, but I have learned I don't do very well in isolation. I need to be in community with other people. I need to hang out with other people seeking spiritual intimacy. I need to have their influences. And yes, I need to hear both about their failures and their excess, their successes. Both inspire me, both teach me, both help me. One of my great fears of this COVID-19, so many folks have found the wonderful experience of dialing in from home, and we're so thankful for that opportunity, so thankful for everyone who connected. We're not speaking down to this at all, but one of my fears is perhaps it could become a habit and could become too easy to stay at home because if you're like me, ultimately, sooner or later, we need community to grow and develop this intimate relationship with with him, The second thing that I learned in this partnership with God, he does have some things he wants me to do. He's not gonna do it all for me. He's gonna give me a new heart, give me a new possibility, give me a new desire, but guess what? He wants me to engage with him. He wants me to work the plan with him. There is a place for me to commit. There is a place for me to renew. I stop preaching now, and I start meddling with Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and them with me. If you're like me, if you've been following the Lord for a while, if you've given any effort to try and reach those lost people, you likely have quoted this verse a dozen, two dozen, a hundred times. It's so applicable for those people. Christ is knocking at their door and they've got to open that door. If you just would obey him, he'll come in and have intimacy with you. But guess what? He's saying these words to us guys. To those who have, who have been in self-deception and we've become lukewarm and polluted with the things of this world, he's saying this to us. The omnipotent God is knocking at our heart's door. Lynn, I wanna come in. I wanna be closer to you. I wanna have an intimate relationship with you. Just if you'll just open the door. It's the sovereign God who's knocking at my heart's door. He's giving me an invitation, but somewhere, somehow, I'll let you define it theologically, but somehow he wants me to go to the door and open the door. He wants to see me invite him in. He wants to come into my life, not just when I was far from him, lost in my sin. He wants to come into my life today, this very day. He wants to have an intimate relationship with me and with you. And that's symbolized with this concept of sitting down to eat. There's a certain intimacy that's in that, in that image. I want to come in and have dinner with you. I want you to experience. The last scripture that I prepared to share with you, but if you allow me just to mention it, Romans chapter 8. This whole thing I talked about in Revelation or Romans chapter seven, how we can't do this on our own will. We have no power. And yet, Paul says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Well, Romans, the very next chapter, Romans chapter 8 tells us what that's all about. It's about his spirit coming into our lives and infusing us with a power that's greater than us. And all of a sudden, this partnership that we have with God is ignited with the power of his spirit working within us. And suddenly those things we could not do, we are empowered to be able to do, but not in our own strength. It's in this power of his spirit working in us. Us. pathway to denial is sometimes we are far from God we need him sometimes we experience it when we rest on past achievements and forgetting our current journey and sometimes we fall into it even in the context of being so focused on others we forget about our own walk I close with three final things for you to take with you. Number one, today do you feel the amen, the faithful and true, the very voice of Jesus speaking to you? If you do, it's because he loves you. He is not here to condemn us. He is here because he loves us. He wants to ignite us into an intimate relationship with us, not because he's trying to condemn us, but because he loves us. Number two, change comes from a partnership with God, with his spirit working in us, Every single day, this is not a one-time experience and then we go on our merry way. This is an experience that we have on a daily basis through the ups and downs of life. Sometimes, sometimes feeling like we're on top of the mountains, sometimes we're in the valley, but it's everyday experience. And then thirdly, the journey begins one step at a time and continues every day. It's a daily challenge. I would ask the worship team to come. We're going to close with a song and as they sing I ask you to reflect on this thing the presence of Christ ultimately as we're talking about It's coming into an intimate relationship with Jesus and his presence coming in our life when you think the presence of Christ think freedom think hope think healing think love everlasting but most of all think about the spirit of God working in our hearts enabling us to do things we could never do on our own And top of that list is living in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Thank you.